From Radiotopia, you're listening to Season 7 of Love & Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Counter Melody, featuring Bob Paget. The Enigma Variations is a symphonic work composed by Edward Elgar. It's a set of variations based on a theme which he called Enigma. Following the Enigma theme, of course, is a set of 14 variations, each dedicated to one of Elgar's friends. For example, variation 10, Dora Bella, is dedicated to his friend Dora Penny. She had a a stutter, and Elgar poked fun at that. Kind of a stuttering line. He did it in a playful way. He didn't intend to demean her. He took something that others may have looked down upon and turned it into something beautiful. This is Elgar describing the Enigma variations. The Enigma I will not explain. Its dark saying must be left unguessed. And I warn you that the connection between the variations and the theme is often of the slightest texture. Further, through and over the whole set, another and larger theme goes but is not played. That sounds like a riddle, right? Elgar himself said that the Enigma theme was in fact a counter melody to a very famous theme. Many diverse themes have been proposed. Pop Goes the Weasel, Hail Britannia, Old Lang Syne, Mozart's Prague Symphony. But none of these melodies actually fit, and so the debate continues. I was hopeful that someone had already figured this out. Somebody had studied this in great detail and had written a book on the subject, and all I would have to do is read it, and all my questions would be answered. And the more I read, the more I realized none of these musicologists had any idea what the missing source melody was. And that's when I decided if I want to know the answer, I'm going to have to find it for myself. So this was the recording I would listen to over and over again during my one-hour commute each way to and from work. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Something like that. I wouldn't sing the lyrics, but I would try and see if I could fit it. That sounds awful, actually. It does. There's too many dissonances. It's not a vertical fit. It just, it's, it doesn't work. I mean, you can try and shoehorn it in, but it it doesn't work. So, there's all sorts of... Elgar was born in 1857 in the shadow of the hills, which would have such an influence on his music all through his life. As I read more about Elgar, I started recognizing an astonishing number of parallels. They were a lower middle class family. He didn't have a degree in music and neither did I. He was the son of a devout Christian mother who taught him to revere God in the arts. My mom's the same way. He was considered an outsider because of his faith, profession, and class. I think because of my more conservative Christian views, I felt like an outsider 
And so, for that reason, of course, I've been suspicious of career academics, and Elgar certainly was. There was no question of his going to any academy. I take a step back and I look at all these similar life experiences, and I go, it "Seems like my life, on many levels, prepared me for this." The Mendelssohn fragments are short four-note snippets from a concert overture by Felix Mendelssohn called "Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage." Elgar quotes these four-note fragments. It occurred to me that Elgar quoted Mendelssohn because Mendelssohn quotes the famous theme in one of his own works. That was the epiphany that I needed. I asked myself. Is there a famous melody that Felix Mendelssohn quotes in one of his works? Well, in the fourth movement of the Reformation Symphony, he quotes, "A mighty fortress is our God." Probably the most famous hymns ever composed by the Reformation leader Martin Luther. Being a Roman Catholic, he couldn't quote it openly, so this is why I think he resorted to quoting it covertly to maintain his Roman Catholic integrity, but at the same time quietly paying homage to all these great German masters. And I thought, wow, maybe this could be the theme. This epiphany occurred to me on the 200th anniversary of the birth of Felix Mendelssohn. I don't think it's a coincidence. At the height of the financial crisis, Genworth went through a round of layoffs, and I was caught up in that. I was the sole provider for my family, my wife, and five kids. I really felt that I had failed by losing my job. Here I was on the cusp of a major breakthrough in terms of my research in the Enigma variations, and within the month, I'm laid off. But、uh, I was able to pursue the research more extensively at that point because I had more time available. When I was looking at the Enigma theme, I noticed the bass line at the beginning replicates in reverse the last six notes of Ein Festerberg. Dun 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 bum bum. So it has this falling scale pattern. Well, if you do it in minor, in reverse, bum 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 bum. Those are the exact same notes in the bass line of the Enigma theme. But the way that that works in your solution is you take three different versions of Ein Festerberg and put it together. Yes, I think in part the rationale for such an unconventional approach is to obscure the source theme. I, I thought that was truly remarkable. At first, I simply published a short blog post and included some sheet music. That showed the a mapping of Ein Festerberg over the Enigma theme. 
I believe that after putting together this mapping, which was far from perfect, that somehow all the scholars would just magically line up and acknowledge it as the solution, and I'd be heralded as the, the next great Elgar scholar. Well, the exact opposite happened. Uh, so he says, for the present, I will confine myself to saying, the material I've seen from Mr. Paget some time ago now stops short, way short of being convincing. Julian Rushton is one of the most widely recognized experts on Elgar. And of course, he's English, you know, with a, a stunning academic pedigree. He writes, Mr. Paget is ingenious, if nothing else, in pursuing his obsession. Obsession is not, I think, too strong a word. <laughs> I think you need to be obsessed to tackle this one. So I agree with him on that. You're obsessed. Well, I think you have to be to pursue something this difficult. It was like right before Thanksgiving. I get home from work, and of course I'm always busy, you know, working, because that's what I do. And there was a moving vehicle. I'm like, what's going on? Are we moving? She's like, no, I'm moving. I'm like, oh no. You could tell she had made up her mind about this some time before. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. When I asked her why, she said in part it was due to the fact that I wasn't paying attention to her and the kids because I was spending so much time researching the Enigma Variations. It snowed a lot that winter, and the roads iced over. I didn't sleep much. I didn't eat much. I think I lost like 20 pounds. I felt powerless, like there was nothing I could do or say to change this slow-motion crash. And I was... After about six months, we were able to work things out and reconcile. We've been working on our relationship ever since. I've tried to be a better listener. And I can be stubborn in certain areas. I can assume that I already know the answer when I really don't. I see a correlation between how people approach Elgar's Enigma Variations and how they approach the Bible itself. You approach the Enigma Variations the way you would approach the Bible. I mean, for instance, Noah's Ark, flood. Mm -hmm. You believe there was a flood. Rushton Abs might, absolutely. Yeah, Rushton would say, maybe would say, well, that's a myth or something like that. But you don't believe that the Bible is a myth. Just like you don't believe that the... No, I, I believe the Bible is a historical text and, and archaeological evidence, I think, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's extremely accurate. According to the biblical account, the ark was 300 Egyptian cubits long, which translates into 515 feet. Oh, 515. That number came up somewhere before, didn't it? Variation 13. That number, I think, you can link to the whole idea of salvation. But that fossilized ship in the mountain, the foothills of Ararat is 515 feet long. And what does every culture in the world have? A flood myth. Yeah. Is that a coincidence? So I, I, I don't buy into some of these dominant uh, secularized worldviews. I'm skeptical, for example, of the traditional Darwinian approach to our origins. Patently absurd patently absurd. Darwin's main evidence that he marshaled in the origins were the results of selective breeding experiments, which involved intelligent oversight, completely at odds with this concept that it's somehow random. And, and for example, DNA being essentially a programming language. 
a language requires someone who speaks it, who conjured it up, who created it. It's, it's not something that just sort of randomly arises. Elgar provided a sealed envelope with instructions that it be opened 100 years after his death. 2034, they will unseal that, and it's possible it does contain the answers to the Enigma variations. Where will you be when they open the envelope? Will you buy your first ticket to England? Well, you know, I don't necessarily have to be there in person to see the results, so. But it would be, I think, exciting to be there when it happens. But then again, there may be those who don't want the answer to come out. So if they don't like what they find, they might not want to share it. Now, there are some who believe that what I'm finding is merely the product of confirmation bias. And I must respectfully disagree with that opinion. There are just too many parallels to be ignored. The Enigma theme consists of an ABAC structure. ABAC spells aback, and that's actually a sailing term, which means the sail is blown backwards into the mast. Well, retrograde counterpoint is backwards. So take the note letters. They spell E-E's psalm. Elgar spells in the bass line D-E. My festive bird comes from Psalm 46. Any matching letters are eliminated. The tuning of the timpani and Nimrod versus... The meaning of it is given by its absence. Notice what happens. The languages that he used within the cipher are English, Latin, German, and Aramaic. And the first letters of those languages spell Elgar. So it's a code within a code and it's all pointing in the same direction. I mean, if this was a a product of confirmation bias, where I'm just inventing these things out of thin air, then I think it would be amazing to try and get them all to basically encode the same set of answers. It's deliberate. It's not the product of coincidence. You know, one or two I could chalk up to coincidence, but when you have scores of them, within the score, pun intended, you can't ignore that. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Daniel Estrin with Jesse Carrier and Stephen Jackson. If you want to learn more about Bob's work, you can read Daniel's article in The New Republic. Just search for Elgar's Enigma. Love and Radio is produced by Stephen Jackson and Julia DeWitt. We are a production of Radiotopia, whose founding sponsor is the Knight Foundation, and made possible thanks to the generous support of you guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'll be dropping new episodes every two weeks from here on out. So stay tuned.
Thank you.